Hello and welcome to the Series 8 of the Platform Podcast, hosted by Marketplace Risk founder and CEO, Jeremy Gottschalk. The Platform Podcast features conversations with founders, operators, and leaders from the marketplace and digital platform ecosystem, with the goal of providing valuable real-world lessons that can be leveraged by you, the listener, to help you launch, grow, and succeed. Please note, this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not professional advice. For specific issues, please seek an appropriate professional or contact us at info at marketplacerace.com for more information. Welcome to the Platform Podcast. On this episode, I'm welcoming Sonia Nagar, who is a partner at Pritzker Group, a venture capital firm based out of Chicago, Illinois. Sonia, it's a pleasure not only to chat with you because it's been so long, but also to welcome you to the eighth series of the Platform Podcast. Thank you for having me. So I'd love to start with your background um, and what led you to the world of venture capital and uh, specifically the Pritzker Group. Sure. So I always tell folks, um, if they don't know exactly what they want to do at any point in their career, it is totally fine because I had a fairly nonlinear path into venture capital. I studied engineering at the University of Michigan and was a, was a mechanical engineer, but a self-taught programmer. So my first job was uh, as a mechanical engineer slash programmer at General Motors in their advanced engineering group. Quickly realized I did not want to be an engineer. So I went to business school, was fortunate to go to um, HBS, got my MBA, uh, was pretty good at math, and so did a summer internship in investment banking on Wall Street in their tech media telecom group. I did not love banking, but I worked on the IPO team for a company called Bill Me Later that was in the payment space. And in the course of um, working with them, I got really excited about the idea of being a founder. And they actually decided not to go public, and they took a big investment from Amazon over the summer while I was there. And so doing all the diligence about Amazon, I got really excited about what Amazon was doing. This was summer 2007. They had just launched Amazon Prime. We're still mostly a books and media company, but we're clearly had ambitions to do bigger things. Um, so when I went back for my second year of business school, I tinkered around with startup ideas, but didn't have anything that I thought had legs. And so I ended up recruiting to go to Amazon. And their pitch to MBAs at the time was like, come work at Amazon. We're launching a bunch of new categories and you can learn how to be a founder with all the support and safety network of a big business. I actually don't think you learn how to be a founder by going to work for a company as big as Amazon. But I went there and I was part of the team that launched the clothing category in circa 2008, 2009. Um, and then my boyfriend at the time who became my fiance and then eventually my husband, he was doing his MBA in New York. So in 2010, I left Amazon to go to New York to join him. And that's when I founded a mobile shopping startup based on some of the trends that I saw at Amazon around how influencers could impact buying decisions. We pivoted through a bunch of ideas, but ultimately what we were doing is we were putting catalogs on the iPad that were curated using social data. Um, that company was acquired in 2015 by a company that was public at the time called Retail Me Not. That was a marketplace in the couponing space. And as part of that acquisition, I ran their mobile team for two years. And then when my earnout was up, my husband and I, we were splitting time between New York, which is where I had founded my startup, and Austin, which is where Retail Me Not was headquartered. But we were ready to put down roots and start a family, and we wanted to get back to the Midwest. So we bought a place in Chicago, and I thought I was going to start another company. And I started meeting with VCs in Chicago, 
to get to know them before I had to ask them for money because that was a big lesson learned from being a founder the first time around. And I met Pritzker Group in that context as somebody who was had just relocated to Chicago and was potentially starting another startup. Pritzker Group, they liked my background and the way I was thinking about the world. And at the time, I didn't have an idea that I was really passionate about, but I had a whole bunch of areas that I thought were really interesting intellectually. Um, but they made me an offer to come be an investor. And I still remembered how hard it was to be a founder. And so that was an easy yes for me. And in you know the Chicago ecosystem, the Pritzker Group has just done a fantastic job, uh, both as an investor and also as an ecosystem builder. Mm-hmm. And so I saw a lot of opportunity there. And so can you talk a little bit about um, Pritzker Group's areas of investment or their uh, focus areas? Yes. So Pritzker Group, the fund's been around for 30 years. And these days, I'd say we have the the advantage of having looked across 30 years of investing. And there are two categories that have emerged as winners for us. One is marketplace-based businesses, either B2B or B2C. Um, Some of our best investments, SMS Assist, um, we're an investor in Coinbase, another company called Backlot Cars um, that were great exits for the firm. Um, those were all marketplace model businesses. And then the other category we spent a lot of time in is vertical SaaS. But uh, but yeah, so those are the two areas. We come in at the seed or Series A stage. We're usually writing a $5 million check at the Series A or 500 k to $1 million check at the seed stage. We prefer to lead, but we can be flexible and be part of a syndicate. Um and we're pretty hands-on once we invest. And full disclosure, I, I worked with Sonia at Sitter City, um, which was a portfolio company of Pritzker Group before it was acquired. Um, and you were nice enough to have lunch with me and talk about what a VC does um, when I was kind of exploring my next move. And so I'd love for you to talk about kind of a day in the life of, v- of a VC. Um, you know, how does a VC spend her day? What consumes most of your time? I recall when you and I met, you broke it up into thirds um, and it was made it super clear. Um, and so I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, there are three basic functions that a VC does. The first is sourcing, which is finding great deals. And so about a third of your time is spent out in the market. You're either meeting with founders for first meetings to get to another company, talking to other investors to have them refer you deals, or you're doing top of funnel marketing activities, like sitting on a panel or going to a conference to try to meet a bunch of people um, that you could potentially invest in. A third of your time is spent on diligence. It's like after you have the first meeting, there are a certain number of companies you're going to move into a more considered diligence phase where you're going to make a decision on whether or not you want to invest. And as part of your diligence, you're probably doing reference checks on the founders, some independent research on the market to figure out who the competition is and customer calls um, to figure out if customers really like the thing that this company is doing, whether it's novel and spending time getting to know the team to ultimately make a decision on whether you want to back them. Um, so that's another the second third. And then the last third is after you invest trying to help your portfolio companies be as successful as possible. So often for Pritzker Group, we've historically taken board seats. So it's, you know, the quarterly board meetings, we'll do monthly KPI check-ins with our founders, and it's helping them with recruiting, hiring, B2B, business development. Um, And then, you know, we'll try to also bring our ecosystem together. So we'll do CEO summits or, you know, functional um, workshops on here's how you launch a B2B sales team, or here's how you manage HR once you've got 
50 employees and not just five. Um, so there's a lot of work that happens post-investment as well. It's interesting when you talk about sourcing deals and that it consumes a third of your time because I work with so many startups and you know they have so much anxiety and stress over connecting with VCs. And it seems to me that there's this equal amount of like energy and stress and, and focus on both sides that, um, you know, I think ultimately, you know, from the startups perspective, you just got to pound the pavement, figure out who the right investment investors are and all of that. But it's funny because when you and I had that conversation, I just thought like, why is it a third of the time? Because these people are, I mean, they would line up out your hallway and, and you know, make it super efficient. But um, I suppose you're looking for the right investment. And, you know, there's probably a, a lot of criteria that you wade through before you actually take a meeting with somebody, no? Yeah. And not only that, but one thing that surprised me sitting on this side of the table is the best deals are often competitive. And you can't do a great deal unless you see a great deal. And so you've got to make sure you're top of mind and while it may not seem like this when you're a founder, but there are a ton of investors competing for deals. And there's there's actually a fair amount of capital at the early stages um, that are all trying to find the best deal. So it, it yeah, it, it is, it spends, you spend a lot of time just making sure you're top of mind for founders when they decide to invest. And I think it helps. I try, I'm fairly thesis driven. Like I have a lot of experience as an operator, as a founder, and as an investor in marketplace-based businesses. And so in the last 18 months, I've really focused my energy on trying to be known in this specific sector that I invest in so that I can qualify. You know, founders, I always advise them, you qualify your deal flow by understanding where investors are excited to invest or where they have experience and expertise that can be valuable to you. And I think I've been trying to put myself out there more to say, here's what I invest in so that founders can find me and um, understand efficiently the kinds of things I'm excited about. Right. It, it, it's interesting because I will work with um, a lot of early stage startups as a lawyer, but sometimes in a consulting capacity. And a lot of times they'll ask me, you know, if I would introduce them to prospective investors. And, you know, my answer is always sure when you're ready, right? Like, because it's obviously my reputation as well. If I introduce somebody, um, but what's interesting is I always tell them you have to do your homework and think of this, you know, kind of as your um, resume with a cover letter, do your homework and talk to the VC um, in a way that that resonates with them. So if you're a marketplace, you, know, you need to understand if they're invested in marketplaces at all, how interested they are, what other marketplaces have they invested in? Are they, you know, B2C, B2B? And Put together a kind of a cover note that identifies or connects some of those dots and why you know you'd love to meet with them um, and it's interesting because i think that once when you start talking to um kind of early stage founders and founding teams about it's not just getting in front of an investor it's doing all of the homework so that when you do it, it kind of makes sense and you're not wasting people's time and selfishly i always tell them I, you know my reputation is on the line so if i introduced somebody and they don't have any product market fit. They've got no traction at all. It doesn't make sense, you know, right? It's it's going to reflect on me as well. So I can, I just, uh, you know, kind of take it selfishly. But um, there's a lot of work that goes into, obviously, on the, the startup side, but but obviously on the, the VC side as well to, um, I guess, qualify kind of at a very early stage, these different opportunities. Yeah, I mean, I think that's great advice to founders. If you're doing the outreach, the best cover letter is going to say, I see that you've invested in XYZ companies that are similar to what we do, but in a different space, non-competitive, but similar. Or I see that you invest in marketplace, or I read this article that says you invest in this type of company, or I saw you at a conference and you said you 
like to to just show that you've done the research. Very few cover letters surprisingly have that level of research, but it's like, just Google me and see what comes up. And you probably uh, could figure out a way to connect some dots for me and make it obvious why I should take that first call. Right, right. When when you're evaluating uh, marketplace investments, kind of what are three or more things that you look for in the business and then also in the leaders or the founders? Yeah. So from a business metrics perspective, I am paying a lot of attention to the growth trajectory. So like the how fast are you growing? Because the biggest difference between uh, venture investment versus a business that maybe isn't as well suited for venture is like, how fast are you growing? So I care about that growth rate. I care about the absolute GMV dollar numbers too that show that you can match supply and demand. So I'll be looking at um, your absolute revenue numbers for seed investments. I'm usually seeing like around a million in GMV. For Series A investments, the last three deals I've done have ranged between 6 million GMV and 12 million GMV. Um, I feel like 10 is a very solid number, but if not, at six, you've got to be unique in your category. We're doing something special and differentiated. Um, and then I care a lot about the micro trends, like on your supply side. What does your supply side retention look like? Like, are your supply, is that, are people super happy and are they sticking around? The best marketplaces will have almost 100% retention on the supply side. And then on the demand side, you know, the more retention you have on that side too, the easier it is for me to see that you can become a very big business quickly. Um, so there's a whole host of numbers that I'm, I'm looking at there on the demand side to see like how fast is the payback happening on CAC um, and how, uh, how frequently are people purchasing. And that helps me like extrapolate up to a TAM. On the founder side, I, I love founders that have some domain expertise. Um, so that's probably first thing. Second thing is grit because marketplace businesses, I think are harder. You have to acquire both on the supply side and the demand side. Often you have an empty room problem with marketplaces. So the best founders figure out a way to hack one side or the other. And often that's through brute force. And so there's like a level of scrappiness and grit that I look for um, in founders. And then the third thing is tech advantages, because the best marketplaces will start thinking about tech moats, either by putting software on the supply side to you know, embed themselves on the supply side or creating some hacks on the demand side to get um, more efficient acquisition. And so that's kind of the, those are kind of the three top three things I look for on the founder side. And are there any red flags or things that, you know, let's say the business is a, a, they've got great trajectory and all of that. Are there any red flags or immediate turnoffs when you're evaluating the marketplace, either the, the leadership, the founders, or the business itself? So I like to see a certain level of um, understanding of data and ability to be data driven because so much of building a marketplace business is breaking down cohort data and analyses and like making data-driven decisions to optimize. And that was definitely the Amazon way. It's, so it's a bias I've taken away from seeing how Amazon was able to launch many verticals and categories. And it was always a very data-driven process for optimizing and creating success. And even at Retail Me Not, it was an extremely data-driven company that did a lot of, achieved a lot of growth, not incremental growth, but meaningful growth through business optimization. Um, I I look for that same level of being data-driven in founders. So even at the seed stage, I want to know that you are looking at cohort analysis or even thinking about how you would structure a cohort analysis, that you understand your financials and 
you're looking at the metrics like your supply side retention, your demand data. Um, so the absence of that, so this is on the positive side what I'm looking for, but the flip side is if there's a lack of knowledge, that's a red flag and it usually would lead for me to pass. Sure. And, and kind of this isn't supposed to be a trick question, but if you've got what looks to be like a successful business um, idea, right? Maybe it lacks traction, but the idea is good. I mean, which is more important, the leadership, the founders, or the idea? Definitely the founders, because when we're investing at, you know, a million or even 10 million of GMB, there is still a long way to go before that company can exit and be a venture scale success story. And so the path from getting from 10 million to 100 million or even a billion of GMB, that is a long, there's just a long way to go. And so you've got to bet on people that you think can go that distance. And in many ways, what gets you to a million or 10 million in GMV is not the same skill set that's going to get you to a hundred or a billion. And you just got to, like, I love founders who are self-taught or have demonstrated they can self-teach and convince me that they can scale. And sometimes that's because they've done things outside of their comfort area in other aspects of their life to, to teach themselves a new skill. Like it's one of my, one question that I like to ask founders is like, what's something you've taught yourself to do? Because so much of being able to go from 1 to 10, 10 to 50, 50 to 100 is learning completely new skills along the way. Sure. And, and just being able to figure it out, right? Mm -hmm. I, I always tell, you know, it, really anybody I work with, but particularly lawyers, you know, we're, we're not responsible for knowing everything, but we've got to be able to figure it out. And it's that, you know, I guess grittiness, like you, you described it, but just that ability to figure it out um, and, you know, not be paralyzed by not knowing something, um, I think is is super interesting. I think in as in any business, right, I think it's a, a really good um, trait. Um, turning gears a little bit um, to where um, we work together, how is it, how important is it that founders understand the specific risks of their business? Um, and particularly um, vulnerability. So not market risks necessarily, but more just kind of the, the marketplace specific risks. Yeah. So with market, I mean, I feel like this is why you need good general counsel. Probably a good plug for Jerry, what you do in that, um, you know, in marketplaces, you have buyers, you have sellers. You usually marketplaces are wonderful because you can create more trust and transparency and bring in reviews and escrow and all of these. There's reasons why marketplace businesses are so valuable, but anytime you're dealing with transactions, it's just, you just got to make sure you've got all your ducks in a row and that you have good counsel to advise you on how to protect yourself and the company from unnecessary risk. And, and now, you know, you'll get Airbnb and even Sitter City, you know, it's a great example. There's tons of risk in that business and that you're connecting buyers and sellers. And even if you don't have control over the inventory, it's not like you are maker or the provider, it's not your W-2 employees that are providing a contract yeah. or service, you are taking on risk by facilitating. As you get to scale, bad actors will enter your system and you need to have process and good legal counsel in place to advise you on how to try to protect people from other bad actors in the system. But it's just, as you scale any consumer business or even B2B business, you're going in, in the world, you know, even if it's not a tech company, you're going to encounter bad actors. And the question is just, do you have the right process, policy, technology to try to mitigate quickly, you know, you know, get those people out of the system. Um, and then you got to have your legal ducks in a row. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because when, when people ask what I do, I mean, ultimately, like I'm an evangelist for risk management, which is like the least sexiest title you could come up with. But the reality is I, I, I probably meet a handful of founders or leaders every single week. I talk to them. I, I'm, I'm doing video calls with them. And one of the things I always tell them is, you know, when you hit some kind of scale, bad things are going to happen. People are going to figure out how to misuse your platform or accidents are going to happen. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, look at it as a badge of honor, right? Uh, I wouldn't say this publicly necessarily, but when you hit scale, things are going to statistically something bad is going to happen. And, and, and hopefully that hasn't happened prematurely. And that means you hit some sort of scale. But the, the onus and the responsibility is really on the leadership to understand those bad things that can happen and to protect as, as much as possible uh, against them for themselves, but all of, also their stakeholders. Um, and so it's it's one of those things that I, I love working with super early stage uh, leadership teams in large part because they're so idealistic and they have so much energy and so much passion. And I, I don't ever want to be the one that comes in the room and, and squashes that. But my focus is like, okay, that's great. I leave you to all of the, the the kind of the business functions, but now we have to figure out, and I'm here is to figure out how is this going to be misused, misappropriated, and and really risk your reputation, the investment, uh, etc. So um, I think that that's that's super super key. Um, so when you're thinking about risks, um, and I appreciate probably not to the level that I do, um, but um, how do you evaluate a founding team or when you're evaluating uh, an investment opportunity, how do you think through their appreciation of risk or understanding of kind of the bad things that could happen with their platforms? Yeah, I mean, a lot of this is hiring the right counsel because I, I, you know, I, I want the founders to be focused on where they have expertise and then get advice in the places where they don't need to have, like they should have some awareness of the risk, but a lot of it comes down to hiring the right outside counsel because it's like if you if this is your first time building a marketplace business, I don't actually expect you to understand all the crazy ways people can try to misuse your platform. But find people who've done it before, or you know, counsel who specializes in that particular function that can tell you. It's like you don't need to learn this by brute force doing it. it get the expertise from somebody who's seen it a hundred times before. Right. Right. I think at the early stage, um, one of the kind of conflicts is resources are precious. Right. And so even if they've raised some money, resources are precious. And, you know, I even tell people, save your money, don't spend it on lawyers because we'll suck you dry when it comes to um, the amount of work we can find. We can always find problems. Right. And so it's trying to find, I suppose, that right um, lawyer or that that um, the right experience to kind of get you to the next step, not to um, overdo it or belabor, as you said, kind of figuring out every problem that that could come to pass, but understanding like what are the big issues, protecting where you can, and then moving on. Because the one thing I, I completely agree with you that uh, you know the CEO's time is not best spent thinking about insurance policies or um, you know the trust and safety issues that are very very important, but probably um, something that could be easily delegated if it's, you know, I think properly appreciated. Um, so thinking about kind of risk along those lines, um, you know, VCs are notorious risk takers, right? I mean, as you, um, I was watching actually an interview you did um, where you talked about, um, you know, the amount of early stage companies that don't make it right statistically. So I think by by default that makes you um, a risk taker. 
um, an extreme risk taker, maybe. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, like, do you do you invest or would you invest in a founding team or founders that have the same risk appetite as you? Or is there, I don't want to say a double standard in a negative way, or yeah. is there a standard when it comes to that? You know, it's funny. I actually think I look for founders that have an even higher risk appetite than me because as a uh, investor, I'm diversified. It's like I take 10 bets and I only need two or three to hit. Sure. Versus as a founder, you are all in on this one thing. And so most of the founders, like they have it all on the line. I have so much respect for the amount of risk tolerance you have to have. But I think then it's like, yes, you're, you're taking a huge risk as a founder in, in building this business. Um, but I want to make sure that they're not um, cavalier about the things that matter in life, like other human, you know, like you have to reside on the right side of like certain things like paying your taxes or like, you know, not taking like exorbitant. I think this is like the border. This is a key boardroom discussion is how much risk, financial risk do you take as you're building your startup? And it's honestly, I think one of the most important functions of a good, healthy board is to like debate like any quarter or every six months. It's like, are the risks and the bets that we're making paying off? Or like, what guardrails do we put around? We, we all know we're taking risk, you know, the founder more so than any, because for a founder, the risk or the bets don't pay off, none of them. And ultimately, founders are taking dozens of bets every quarter, every month. Um, the company can go out of business. Right. So there is nobody taking more risk than the founder. And I think healthy boards will debate like what bets you're making and exactly like, is it a bet the company risk? Is it you know, bet a million dollars out of a $10 million round risk or a hundred K out of a 500 K round, you know, there's like guardrails that boards need to put around risk. Sure. That's interesting because um, I guess I always think, you know, you give people your money, they're not going to treat it the same as you would. Um, and so I, w- I guess I would have, uh, to me, I don't want to say counterintuitive, but I would think like um, people might be more cavalier with your money because they didn't like earn it right um, mm-hmm. in the same way. So it's, it's, I always wonder kind of that risk calculation um, when you're giving a 5 million or $6 million, like, you know, do you kind of like hold their hand a little bit and say, this is a lot of money now be careful. Or it's like, you know, you, you guys are, are meant to do this. So go off and prosper. Yeah. Well, I mean, it all starts with a budget, like in the fundraising process, you're reviewing a budget. So you kind of have a sense where, thing, you know, what's going to be spent and in which time frame. So there's like a implicit agreement on here's what financial spend is going to look like. And then every year there's a board approved budget. Um, Now I will say for companies that raise like a hundred million on little to no traction and like don't have places to put that money, but they get this crazy valuation for some reason. That's where I think things get a little crazy where people spend inefficiently. And honestly, it's not leading to the best outcomes. We're seeing a whole bunch of fallout from the 2021 time period where companies were raising way too much money, more than they probably needed or could responsibly invest back into their company. And many of those companies aren't going to make it. So, Right. Right. Well, Sonia, I want to thank you for joining me today. It's been great to catch up and a pleasure to have you on. Um, And uh, if you want to learn more, um, where can they learn more about you and and Pritzker Group? Yeah. So if you Google Sonia Nagar, 
uh, you'll probably come up with my Prisker profile or my LinkedIn profile first. And I talk both on LinkedIn or um, Pritzker's website, you can see where we invest, a list of our investments. I try to be public with that, so all that information, so it's on my LinkedIn as well. Uh, and if you're building a marketplace business at the seed or Series A stage, I'd love to talk. So feel free to send me a qualified email <laughs> referencing my relevant investments and why you think you'd be a good fit. All right. Excellent. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you joining me. Thanks. Thank you for tuning into the Platform Podcast. You can check out more episodes at marketplacerace.com, along with information about all of our conferences, summits, virtual content, and resources designed to help marketplaces and digital platforms launch, grow, and succeed. And follow us on social media at Marketplace Risk to stay up to date on upcoming programs, events, and important news.